There are some passages in the Bible, they're, they're, we call them Bible stories, but they are historical accounts, and some of them are almost bizarre or shocking when we read them. And when someone goes to that place in the Bible and they read that to us, you might say, wait, what? Really? God did that? We have our own ideas oftentimes of what God should be like and how he should behave. We have our own priorities, our own ways, our own ideas, and we paste them onto God. And if we're not careful, when he acts outside of our comfortable expectations of how we think God should act, then we're shaken. And I don't enjoy being shaken, but if I'm in error, I probably need to be shaken. And if I'm in sin, I most certainly need to be shaken loose of those things. Here's an interesting question. Does God kill people? Does God kill people? Would God be good and just if he did kill people? And we might say to ourselves, well, evil people, I understand. In fact, we can probably think in the Old Testament of times when there were evil people that raised themselves up against the nation of Israel and God visited great destruction on them. You can think about the nation of Egypt and how there was great loss of life when Egypt refused to let the children of Israel go and continued to enslave them. They were given an opportunity and they refused to do it. There were enemies that the, the Lord allowed the children of Israel to just sweep through in a battle that they never should have been able to win in the first place, and yet they had great conquer. There's even times when the enemies of Israel would, would flee and God would send hail or some sort of calamity upon the enemies. But what about God taking the lives of his own people? What about God taking the lives of his own people? Is it possible as a follower of God to do something so sinful that God looks at us and he says, it's time to come home. It's time to come home. And I don't even mean in a natural sense where sometimes there's just consequences of sin. For example, you drink, you get behind the wheel, you get into an accident and you die. That's very understandable. Or you live a promiscuous life and you contract some sort of disease and you die from it. Or some sort of overdose because of, of narcotics or something. I'm not even talking about that. Just that you sin to such an extent or I sin to such an extent or in such a way at such a time that immediately we die from it. As shocking as it might be, that exact scenario is in the Bible passage that we have tonight. In the book of Acts, we're continuing to go through the story of the early church, the continuing works of the Lord Jesus Christ, as seen in the early church. And we have in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1, an account of a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. How many of you are familiar with this Bible story? Okay. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? that thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. 
Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. Let's pray together. Father, this passage is difficult to confront because of sometimes our minds thinking of things in an earthly way, in a man-centered way, rather than in a holy way, and I pray that you'd shake us loose for that and give us understanding in this hour. May your spirit illuminate it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are looking at the life of the early church in the city of Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus Christ, by this point, has given his life, died, rose from the grave, showed himself to the disciples, was with them for 40 days, gave them the Great Commission, ascended back into heaven. The Spirit of God came on the day of Pentecost, empowered the church to do what Jesus had called them to do, which was to preach the gospel to every creature and to be witnesses both in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, under the uttermost part of the earth. And thousands of people are hearing the gospel message and thousands of people are getting saved and baptized and added to this local church in the city of Jerusalem. So far, the only church. And what we, we see happen is there's persecution that happens. But even in the face of persecution, they stay bold, they continue to preach the gospel, and they show amazing love towards one another and amazing generosity. And that brings us in the light of this amazing generosity to this passage of Scripture. It talks about Ananias and Sapphira, his wife. Now, Ananias, this is not the high priest or related to the high priest in any way. We see that name in other places in the New Testament. These are different people. And these are people that are supposedly part of the church. And these are people who have joined themselves together. And as many people were doing at this point, there were people that were selling possessions that they had in order to get the money for it, whether that was land or houses or maybe even livestock, other things. And they were selling those things and giving it to the church and the, the church's leadership, the apostles, was making sure that anyone that was poor or needy did not face that alone, that the church was there to help meet their needs. And we, we will look there in just a moment, but there was someone named Barnabas. And Barnabas recently sold some things and gave the money and brought it to the apostles. And everything that he made from that sale, he brought to the apostles and laid it at their feet. And Barnabas was called the son of consolation. He was championed as a great man. And as we can tell, he had the confidence of the church leadership as later in the book of Acts, he gets called to go check on some things and eventually becomes a missionary. So all of that is the background for this. So Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a possession. You say, what was the possession? Well, we're not really told, but it was most likely land or a considerable amount. They didn't just sell their like old goat, right? This was something that if they had given all of this money, it would have been praiseworthy. It would have made them look good. It would have made them look good. Verse number two, and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it. So what they did was they sold it, and there was a certain uh, amount of money that they made. Let's say that they made $250,000 off of this thing that they sold, hypothetically speaking. Let's say that that's what they made off of it. Well, they decided that they were going to tell everybody that maybe they made $150,000 off of it. And they were going to keep $100,000 for themselves. 
So that's what it means when they kept back part of it. This is the same idea of uh, almost like embezzling, right? Now, they, they still gave money, it says. They brought a certain part. We don't know how much, but they brought a certain part of it, and they also laid it at the apostles' feet. They also wanted to be thought of well, and they, they were conspiring. It says that the wife was privy to it, meaning that she was aware of private information that other people weren't aware of. And so the idea was, we're going to keep back some of this money, we're going to bring some of it to the church, and they acted like this is all that they had. Back in Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, it says, And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is, being interpreted, the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he takes the money that he made and he gives it so that nobody is suffering. People that need housing can have it. People that need medicine can have it. People that need food that can have it, raiment, whatever they need, he's, he's all in. Barnabas is an encourager. And Ananias and Sapphira, they want to be numbered alongside Barnabas. They want to be thought of as well as Barnabas was thought of. Perhaps they saw Barnabas getting more responsibility, and maybe they wanted roles of leadership. We're not told all of it. But here's what happens in verse number three as they lay this amount of money down at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? So the devil is involved in this scheme. Now, we're going to find out in just a moment, it's not like they were required to sell this land and they refused to do it. The apostles didn't go and say, all right, everybody, give me your portfolios. Everybody in the church, give me your portfolios of all the land and the stock and all, all the things. Give me your bank statements. Okay, you have to sell this and you have to sell this and you have to sell this. No, it was nothing like that. It was done of their free will. It was done of their free will. But Ananias said, this is all of it. And Satan was involved in this. The great adversary, the great enemy, which, by the way, is a real person and not just a concept. He's not a human like you and I, but he is most certainly a person. And this is the great enemy of God and God's people. This is a fallen angel, Lucifer, that at one point in time uh, was in the presence of God and perhaps the most beautiful of all of God's created angels. And he said one day, I want to be like the Most High. I will ascend to his throne. Wanted to, to take over, led a rebellion, and cast out. And those that fell, those that sided with him fell also. And that's where you end up with your demons from and the devil. And the devil apparently was influencing Ananias in this decision. He was influencing Ananias in this decision. The whole time we have to look at this and wonder to ourselves, was Ananias really saved? Was Sapphira really saved? And that is truly a hard question to answer. There's other places in the scriptures that we'll look at tonight where events like this happen, and it's unlikely that all of these people were, were truly saved, but it's unlikely that all of them were not saved either. And so we have, to, we have to wrestle with that. But apparently, Satan had some sort of influence, and the influence was for him to lie and to put on this show. To lie to whom? Well, that's the important thing. It wasn't about lying to the apostles. To whom does it say that Ananias lied? The Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost. Which makes me think that perhaps the Holy Ghost really was inside of Ananias. And that's why it didn't work 
because the Holy Ghost knew what was going on inside of his heart. It's hard to tell from what we're told. It continues on in verse number four. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? So here's what he's saying. Before you sold it, it was yours and you could do whatever you wanted with it. You really could. And after you sold it, the money that you got was yours and you could do whatever you wanted with it. If you did make $250,000, as we hypothesized, you could have said, we made $250,000 off of it. Here's $150,000. And they probably would have been like, praise God, that's amazing. That's wonderful. But there was a lie involved. They were using the Christian faith for their own selfish ends. They wanted to be applauded of men. They wanted to be seen of men. They wanted someone to recognize them, to celebrate them. And so they lied in order to get that. And they thought that they could bring this kind of behavior into the church and that there would be no repercussions. So these were free will offerings. These were money that the people chose to bring in. They were not required, nor are you and I required to go and sell everything that we own and give the money to the church, right? Some people have taken this truth and they've abused it and they try and get people to do things that are, are not seen in scripture. It's a wonderful thing to give generously if the Lord has prospered you. It's a wonderful thing to give above and beyond the tithe that belongs to the Lord. But this use of lying brought them into a conflict directly with the Lord. It says at the end, why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. That's a scary idea, to lie unto God. Now, it's not scary if God is the old grandpa on his rocking chair, sitting on his cosmic front porch, drinking sweet tea, sort of oblivious to what's going on, aged, not really involved, not really that powerful, and he just kind of likes it when the kids call him up every once in a while and they say, hey, and he's happy to help out where he can. Doesn't help out a whole lot, but he's happy to help out where he can if you need something, sprinkle a little blessing here and there. If that's the God that you think that we serve, you're terribly mistaken. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true and living God of the Bible, is a holy God. He is a jealous God. And he is as opposite to sin as anything could be opposite to anything. There is no shadow of turning in him. There is no darkness in him at all. And it says that he's angry with the wicked. He's angry with sinners every day. God hates sin. Sin is what polluted the world that he made. It's what destroys his children that he created, making us in his own image, and yet we were polluted and cursed by our own decisions to sin. He despises sin. And for us to think that sin is safe is to fool ourselves. You know, I, I remember engaging in dangerous behavior. And the first time I did it, I was so worried that something was going to go wrong. I was so worried that something was going to happen because I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. But you know what happened? No lightning bolt. No immediate heart attack. I wasn't struck down with worms or something like that like we read about later in the book of Acts. That didn't happen. And so then the second time that I did it, I wasn't as scared. 
And the third time that I did it, I, wasn't, I was even yet less scared. And we get to the place where we engage in sinful behavior and in sinful activities. Remember, sin is simply when God says, don't do this bad thing, and we do it anyway. And, or God says, do this good thing, and we refuse to do it. That's all that sin is. And, and we start to think, it's really not that big of a deal. He's going to promise to forgive me anyway. There's not going to be any consequences for it until there are. And perhaps you have in your own life or you have seen in the lives of other people when the day finally comes, or the bill finally comes due. Now, praise God, if Ananias and Sapphira truly were saved, they're not going to face judgment before God in heaven for this sin. But there are earthly consequences, aren't there? There are earthly consequences for sin. And our sin affects other people around us and not just ourselves. So what does happen to Ananias? Well, verse number five, and Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. He died. Gave up the ghost is that same phrase that they talked about with Jesus on the cross. He gave up the ghost. He died. Ananias was immediately confronted with that sin, and it was mentioned twice that it was under the Spirit of God and unto God that he sinned, and he died right there. It doesn't say anything about the apostles killing him. It doesn't say that he got sick and he languished for a long time because of it. It doesn't say that, well, you know, Ananias' whole time had an undiagnosed brain aneurysm and it just happened to take his life at this moment. No, there's nothing like that. He, he blatantly sinned and rebelled and he pretended and he was given an opportunity and did not repent and his life was over. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. Hold on a second. Great fear and reverence came upon these things, came upon the people, came upon the church, because sin had been dealt with. Think about, for a second, what these young men in this next verse are going to think. And the young men arose and wound him up. So they came into the presence of the apostles. They had cloth linen with them. And they wrapped him like they would prepare anybody for burial during that time period. And then they went out and they put him in the ground. They buried him. How did he die? God killed him. I don't have another answer for that. I don't, I don't know how else we see it. The, the, the sin that was committed had an immediate cost. Verse number seven. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. This makes me think that she didn't, she didn't have any idea that this had gone on before. She came into where the apostles were. Remember, there's thousands of people that are saved now. So maybe the fact that she walked in there, maybe she was summoned. But then you think if she was summoned, she would have heard about the death of her husband. So my thought is that she often, and probably Ananias too, often came into the presence of the apostles and had access and were some sort of, of perhaps even leadership there. If not leadership, at least well-known. And so she comes into the apostles not knowing anything about what happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Here is your opportunity, Sapphira. Here is your opportunity to say, mm, actually, it wasn't 150000 it was 250000 Actually, we, we kept back part of the price, and we played it off like 
we were doing more for God than we really were. She was given that opportunity, and he said, did you sell it for this much? And she said, yay, for so much. She doubled down on it. She doubled down. And it was about the space, excuse me, and then Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Why did you do this? Why did you do this to tempt God and his spirit as though the spirit of God would not know? Now, does this mean the spirit that was dwelling inside of her? Was this the spirit that was dwelling inside of Peter and informed him? I don't know the, the specific answer to that. But here's what I do know. She was given a chance to repent and she refused to do it. It sounds like Ananias came up with this plan and that his wife was privy to it, meaning that she was also aware, but he said, hey, honey, if anybody asks you, tell them that this is what we made off of this sale. Well, how tempt ye the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet. You know what straightway means? Immediately. She fell down dead right there. You can, you can imagine how frightening that would have been for anybody that witnessed that, especially these young men. And carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. That is not how many of us would imagine God would behave. That is not how many of us would imagine that. This almost seems like something that belongs in the Old Testament, because I don't know why, but we sort of imagine that God was in a bad mood in the Old Testament, and he sort of got over it in the New Testament. I want you to know that Jehovah of the Old Testament, the Jesus of the New Testament, these are not different gods. This is the true and living God of the Bible. And what has happened here is that God is dealing openly with unrepentant sin as a warning. Not only dealing with Ananias and Sapphira, but with those that were around them. Because two times it says great fear came upon all of them. Does this mean that, that people uh, were afraid to go to church? No, I think they were afraid to sin against God. I think they were afraid because everyone started to hear the story come out about how they had lied and they'd kept back part of the money and, and they said that they hadn't and they were trying to pretend to be something that, that they weren't. And we might say to ourselves, well, they still gave a bunch of money. Yes, but no amount of their good deeds could excuse their bad deeds. No amount of their obedience could excuse their sin. That's why no matter how far you and I get as we follow after God, no matter how much we've done for the Lord, no matter how many uh, roles that we've had serving the Lord in church, no matter the fact that, that I'm a pastor or any of the things that I've ever done, it will never in one way make my sin okay. And there's this weird idea that if I serve and I do a lot of stuff over here, that somehow I can get away with this and God is going to wink at it. He's not going to see it. But that is not what we see taught in the scriptures. And that's a very dangerous thing to think of. In fact, it's even worse because if we have done a lot for the Lord and we do have a reputation as serving the Lord, when this happens and becomes publicly known, it's terrible. 
It's terrible. The damage that it does to the things of the Lord. I think this great fear, this great reverence, is something that reminds us about how we should approach the Lord. God is my Father, and He loves me. And He sent His Son, His only begotten Son, gave Him for me to have eternal life. He loves me with an everlasting love. He will never leave me nor forsake me. But that doesn't mean He won't call me home. God can love us and still be holy and against sin at the same time and still be just. I don't particularly like this passage because it makes me think the next time I do this, what will the repercussions be? I, I think, and it's hard to know. You know, God doesn't, God doesn't give me special, but I think I got into a car accident one time because of some sin that I had committed. Because I knew I was willfully rebelling. And I think God just wanted to, to shake loose the idea that somehow I could continue on and be un, untouchable. He was merciful that day because I was uninjured. You say, how do you know that it was God? I don't, I, I don't know how to explain it to you. But I really think it was. I really do. How can we apply this? How can we apply this? Well, there's some practical applications. The first of all is do not use the Christian faith for selfish ends. Do not use the Christian faith for selfish ends. Ananias and Sapphira were using their faith, their religion, their belief, their connection with the church in order to get the approval of people, the praise of people. They perhaps wanted to be seen as holier or more generous than the other people. They wanted to be numbered among those like Barnabas. Maybe them being ele or Barnabas being elevated made them want to be elevated. We don't know all the details, but this kind of selfishness that they had, using it for selfish ends, it cost them their lives. We're warned to not use the church for some other thing. I, I have met people that have joined churches. In fact, it's happened to our church. Someone came in and they joined our church and they were a, um, a photographer. And they thought that by joining our church, they would get a bunch of business from the other people in the church. I've heard of places where real estate agents and people that do the multi-level marketing type things, that they, they intentionally will go and try and find churches and peddle wares, as it were. I've heard, and this is as wicked as anything, I've heard people come and specifically come to church in order to find somebody to have an inappropriate physical relationship with. It's the most bizarre thing in the world, but I had somebody come to me and ask me, just someone off the street, are there, any, are there any single women that you think are in your church that might be interested in sleeping with me? What? I'm like, well, what, you're in a church, buddy. What do you think this is? It was, it was bizarre. It was truly bizarre. But people do things thinking that there will be no consequences. We're here to worship the Lord. We're here to win souls to Christ. We're here to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here to serve one another, to serve the Lord, 
to bring him glory, to bless our community. There are many good reasons why we're here, and none of them ought to be selfish. None of them ought to be selfish. I don't, I don't want to imagine that everybody that does this has selfish aims, but when I was in Tennessee, the church that I served at was a large church. And you would not believe the number of, number of local politicians that happened to stop by near election season and ask if they could say something. Because there were thousands of voters right there that they could speak to. And if they were conservative and they thought the church was conservative, and it was, that they thought that they could somehow get a bunch of votes. And it even started to go around, we heard, that if you can get in there, you're going to get elected because there was enough sway, they thought. I'm, I don't even think that was true, but they, they thought it was. And so then I'm like, wait a minute. Why are you here? Are you here to worship the Lord, or are you here to use us as a, uh, uh, what do you call that, the, the stump where they get up and, pardon? Yeah, campaign stop. Like they backed the train up, and they just wanted to say something. We should not be here for unjust reasons. If we are, God will deal with that. Second of all, we're to understand the gravity of sin. We're to understand the gravity of sin. I believe that God took Ananias' life because of unrepentant sin, and God took Sapphira's life because of unrepentant sin. I think we see it in other places in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This should be familiar to you because we read this passage almost every time we observe the Lord's Supper. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 26, this is talking about observing communion, observing the Lord's table. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. When you, when you participate in the Lord's Supper, it's a serious thing. It's about Jesus. It's about remembering what he did for us. And when we participate in it unworthily, not that we're ever worthy of the blood and body of the Lord Jesus, that's for sure. None of us are, and none of us could be. But when we come to it in a flippant manner, in a sinful manner, and that's what was going on in the church in Corinth, it had turned into a thing. Instead of just having simple uh, bread and, and fruit of the vine, they were having feasts and showing off how much food they had. And other people had almost nothing. And other people were coming in and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine? Verse 29, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. He's saying because of the sin with which they approached the things of God, people became physically ill. Not only did they become physically ill, but it says that they sleep. That's a very nice way of saying they passed away. They died because they approached this. Sin ruined the world, and it will ruin your world. Sin ruined the world, and it will ruin your world. That's the way that we have to look at the seriousness of sin. Pastor Steve has done a whole lot more of it than I have, but when you counsel somebody in a heartbreaking circumstance, just a horrible circumstance, they did not get there all at one time. 
They did not get there all at one time. Now, if they were unsaved, it may seem like that, but especially if they're a believer, the reason that people come to us is that there were several small, slight, sinful choices. And it started over here, and it wasn't that big. And then it, it got a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and it became off course. If you've ever surveyed ground, and I've never done that, but if you've ever laid out a foundation for anything and you're dealing with feet instead of inches, you might start over here with just a little bit of a difference from where you intended to be, but where will it be once the measurements are carried all the way out? You can find yourself over distance and time to be very far off course than, than where you thought you would end up. And we, we think that it won't bite, but it's like a snake. It happens fast, almost so fast you don't know what's going on. Uh, I got, over the, the summer, I got stung by 20-some uh, yellow jackets in the face, all over. It was ridiculous looking. I'm glad none of my neighbors had cameras in their backyard. There was just a piece of wood on the ground, a piece of wood on the ground, and I just picked it up. It had been there for a long time. We were thinking about building a rabbit hutch. That'd be a good place for it. I ripped the top off of a, a ground hive where the, the nursery was, where all the little baby bees were. I have to take that on Shannon's word because I wouldn't go back out there after I got stung. She, she committed chemical warfare on them and solved the problem. So praise God for strong women, right? But my face was swollen. And I don't even, I was running before I knew what was happening. My face just hurt, and I had no conscious idea of what was wrong. If you've ever had an allergic reaction, and sometimes your face kind of stings and kind of hurts, and I thought maybe something like that was going on, but then it started to be everywhere. And I'm just taken off. You know, they're like underneath my shirt, so I'm ripping my shirt off as I'm running through the backyard, right? Ridiculous scene. It hit me so fast that I wasn't thinking, hmm, there's bees, or yellow jackets. Are they bees or hornets, or wasps? What are they? Spawn of the, the enemy, whatever they are. So I didn't sit there and be like, hmm, hmm, those look dangerous. I bet I should run. I have time to get away. Everything will be fine. No, it came on me so fast, I had no time. That is often what it's like when the sin bites in the end and you think, how did I ever wind up here? Well, it wasn't just one decision, but it feels like it in the moment that it was one decision. Knowing the great wickedness of sin, knowing how serious it is, it makes us even more thankful for Christ's work on the cross. You know, when we think of sin as small, we think of salvation as small. When we think of sin as big, we think of salvation as big. When we realize the cost and the gravity and the weight of sin and that Jesus became sin for us, you say, what is the weight of one single sin? Well, it's all of the sorrow that you've ever felt at watching a loved one die. It's as weighty as all of the grief of watching someone lose their mind and their personality to Alzheimer's. It is the brokenness of every baby that dies. It is the heartache of every ruined relationship. You see, because all of that sin, all of that heartache, excuse me, came from the curse, and the curse came from one sin. So if you want to know what the weight of one sin is, 
It's all of the sorrow and heartache that we've ever seen in the world, and yet all of that was placed on Christ. Not just the one, but every sin that you and I have ever committed or will commit, or those that will ever be born will commit, have been placed on the Lord Jesus. When we realize the grandiose nature of salvation because of the weight of sin and that he bore it in his own body on the tree, salvation becomes so much more precious. We become so much more thankful. We're filled with such greater gratitude. And we sing these songs with a a new vigor in our heart because we know what Christ suffered for us. He He drank it to the dregs. He paid all of it. He paid all of it. We need to understand the gravity of it. And then finally, we need to beware the judgment of God against unrepentant sin. I can't get away from this scripture and others showing us that God took home people who at least thought they were his or thought they were part of the church or at least seemed like it. Maybe they weren't true Christians and they snuck in, maybe. But I have seen... I have seen something like this. I don't know if you've ever seen anything like this, but I I believe that the Lord took the life of one of my friends because of something like this. I won't tell you his name because his wife is still living. It's not from this church. It's not from the church I was at in Tennessee. But one of my friends, because of his open rebellion against his pastor, against church leadership, um, he suffered a heart attack and died. He was in a position in leadership in the church as a layperson. He was a mature Christian. He um, was a good friend to me when I was newly saved. He was an old man. I was a young man. It was interesting that he took the time to talk to me, but he did. Got me involved in choir and in serving and things like that. And he's, he led the choir for a very long time. And the, the man was asked by the pastor, I need, you to, I, need you to change. I need you to change some things in the ministry that you're, you're leading. This, this needs to be done. And Oh, yes, yes, yes. And then he didn't change it. And then a few months later, he'd say, we, we, need, to, we need to make some changes to this. And he, Oh, yes, yes, but he never changed it. And this happened for probably a couple of years. And then eventually, the pastor had to relieve him of his responsibility because he refused to do what needed to be done. It wasn't grievous or indecent sin. It was just that he, he thought that it should be done a certain way, and that's what he wanted to do, and so he did it. Well, the pastor removed him from that, and... That's not why I believe God took his life. What happened afterwards was he became increasingly bitter and angry. And he started to sow discord in the church. And he started to try and turn people against the pastor. And he started to rally as though he was going to split the church. And he died. He died of a heart attack right in the middle of all that. Maybe that was circumstantial, but I don't think that it was. He was such a good man, and it, it breaks my heart that he was, he was eaten up with anger like that. Pride, all sorts of stuff contributed to it. But it taught me, it taught me that if the Lord is not going to overlook that good man's sin after all of his years, he's not going to overlook mine. Moreover, friend, if he's not going to overlook judging sin as he did on the cross, he judged his own son who became sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God, if he's not going to let his own son off the hook, he's not going to let me off the hook. And he's not going to let you off the hook. Now, I believe that there is a major difference between unrepentant sin and sin that you're battling. Let me be clear about that. I believe that there's a big difference between unrepentant sin and sin that you are battling. 
when people, when people get to the place where they no longer care and their hearts are hardened and they are a hurt to the work of God and a bad testimony to others, the question then comes, why should God keep us around? Why should God keep us around? That is a sobering thought. That is a sobering thought. What does it look like? What's the difference between unrepentant sin and sin that you're struggling against? Tony? Right. You don't care when it's unrepentant. When you're struggling against it, you care. And how do you know you care? Yeah. Feel terrible after you do it? Every time? Yeah. Bill? Mm. You'll either hide it or try and find help for it. Yeah. I think there's truth in that. Try and find help for it. What, what else do you think? Pastor Steve, you've seen a lot of this. What's the difference? Um, I guess one of the thoughts of that, that comes to mind is that um, many people will use the idea of struggling as an excuse. Mm. that you're willing to do whatever it takes. I think that is huge. For any of you that have ever had loved ones that were addicted to something, or if you've ever been addicted to something, you know that there's a place where people get to where they're finally ready to do whatever it takes to get clean, to get sober, to get free from it. And there's a lot of playing around before you get there, right? There's a lot of playing around where people, we've had addicts come in here time and time again and they, they need help and they say that they wanna get clean and once we tell them this is what you need to do to get clean. They're like, mm, I don't want it that bad. That's not the same thing as battling. I think, what else is the difference? What does it look like to battle against sin? Like legitimately battle against it. Andy? I think it's seeking the change without being provoked. Seeking the change without being provoked. That's good. So you mean it's coming internally from the Spirit? Yes. But there's, there's still a I think internally. I think it has to come. Yeah. I think that's true. Anyone else? What's it look like? Yeah, Chris? Okay, so there's a definite 
act of repentance. You're coming to God. You're asking him to help you, to show you. Yes. Yes. I think when, when we get to the place where we are willing to admit that we need help with something, where we are asking people to, to pray for us, even if we're not shouting it from the rooftops, but we're, we're taking people into confidence, where we're doing things like memorizing Bible verses in order to load ourselves up so that we can fight it, where we're trying to actively stay close to God and in our Bible and trying to be around God's people, and we're, we're, doing, we're doing the right things. We're putting obstacles between us and our sin. If we're really engaged in battle, then there ought to be, there ought to be true conflict there going on. I think that that's a very important distinction and something we all ought to be careful with, that we're not saying we're struggling against it when really we just, we know that it's bad, but we're not going to do anything to change it. Big difference there. How can we say that God is loving and good if he'd take the lives of people like Ananias and Sapphira or of those in the Corinthian church? Yeah. Because God's just. What does that mean? What does that mean that he's just? Yeah. Okay, he's unchanging in his rules. How can we still say that he's, he's loving? Yeah, Ben. Mm. Yeah, he is not a respecter of persons. That's true. God is love, isn't he? But he's also holy. And he's also just. And he's also gracious. There's many things. God is all of these things. The fact that he judges sin and that there's consequences for sin, I don't think that that makes him unloving. In fact, I think that if he allowed sin to run rampant, that would be unloving, don't you? If he never judged the wicked, if there was never any consequences for the innocents that are harmed, I completely agree. I completely agree. But Peter said, Ananias... Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While as it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. Let's pray together. Father, your word is sobering this evening, and it's Hard to even think about it, but I do praise you for who you are. I do praise you that you are a God of justice and holiness, that you will do right. I thank you for your great mercy as well. I thank you for all of the times that you've been merciful with us when you would have been right to just take us home or allow some ill to befall us, and yet in your great mercy you, you chose to protect us anyway. Your love for sinners is beyond our understanding. We praise you for it. Help us not to play games but to be serious and solemn about these things. Grant us victory, Lord, in thy strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you did not receive a prayer sheet, would you mind slipping your hand up?